Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So my next interview is with John Walker, Aaron James, and Robert Hockett. We talk about John Walker's new film, Assholes, A Theory. Yes, I said it, and you're going to hear it quite a few more times on this podcast. It's with tongue firmly planted in cheek, but it's also uh, a, a nod to why this film is an activist's film. You're going to want to listen in. We have a lot of fun. We talk about the philosophy behind assholery, actually. That's what it's about, theory and practice, a definition. We talk about why there's so many of them that are walking the street these days. We talk about policies around it. We get into legal distinctions and public spaces, and we talk about antidotes. We talk about enlightened capitalism and why we have to think some of these things through and through. We talk about why it's a, a, a structural problem. And the whole time that we are doing this, we're having a great time. You're going to want to see this film. It premiered at uh, Hot Docs this year in Toronto. And you're going to want to look for it. I'm pretty sure it's coming up uh, fairly soon in the theaters. If not, it'll be, uh, I would imagine, available through video on demand. A lot of fun, great film, marvelous conversation. Stay tuned. Don't forget davidpecklive.com for more information about my podcasting and my speaking. You can even order my book there, Real Change is Incremental, as well. Uh, don't forget, too, a whole lot of other uh, podcasts to to choose from on facetofacelive.ca. And if you want to get behind what we're doing and support us, you can do that through patreon.com. And if you can't do that, which I totally get, would love it for you to leave us a a quote, uh, a thank you, some kind of note on iTunes or Spotify, a review of some kind would, would be marvelous and would help us out in, in a big way. And if you want to advertise on Face to Face, please do get a hold of us. You can do that through the website. And don't forget rabble.ca as well for a whole lot of other uh, interviews, podcasts, blogs, information, articles about what's going on in the world, news for the rest of us. Coming right up, talking about their new film, Assholes, A Theory, John Walker, Aaron James, and Robert Hockett.
Well, welcome to Face to Face. We are joined by uh, three very special guests here with us today to talk about uh, possibly my new favorite film, uh, Assholes, A Theory. Yes, folks, that's the title of the film. We've got John Walker, Aaron James, and Robert Hockett with us here today. Gents, thanks, thanks for joining me today on Face to Face. Glad to be here with you. What an honor. Thanks so much. Really appreciate uh, your time, and uh, you're currently in the middle of hot docs. I would imagine you're going from sort of one press conference to another, answering a lot of questions. Love to hear a little bit more about that, um, but would also just, if you, if you wouldn't mind, how about sending some context for us? Maybe, John, you can talk about yourself and also the film, and then Aaron and, and, and Robert, just tell us who you are in relation to this um, this movement, <laughs> this this academic uh, project of Aaron's, and and where it's where you guys have landed as a result of it. Right. So, uh, I mean, do you, do you want to talk about the release of the film, or do you want to yeah, talk about the process? Well, I mean, John, you're a celebrated Canadian filmmaker. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you kind of got pulled into the project, and 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 we'll just we'll just go from there. And then I'd love to hear a little bit of context from Aaron and and, and Robert as well, if possible. Yeah, okay. I, I, I didn't get pulled into this uh, project, but um, I, I started, as you, you've seen the film, so yes. you know that, that I had, was having a conversation about assholes, and uh, do you have to be an asshole to be a great filmmaker, artist, architect, whatever, and it was a question that a female colleague asked. I think it's a question that, that uh, maybe women ask uh, more than, than men ask that question, as, as concerned about whether you have to be an asshole to be a great artist. And it got me thinking about the subject of assholery, and we, uh, it was a the female colleague was um, at a film festival, and we had an academic, two academics there, uh, film historians, one Canadian, one American. And the American was spewing off all sorts of assholes in the uh, in the film industry in the U.S. And the Canadian, we st- I sort of looked at him and said, "Got any any ideas?" And we were struggling uh, and, and couldn't really define any uh, any asshole. So I was wondering if this was a cultural a cultural situation. Right. And uh, and so I was heading back to Toronto for the Montreal Festival, and I'm thinking, you know, do we have assholes in Canada? This is really a tough question. <laughs> and heading back to Toronto, and at the time we had uh, Ford as the mayor. And I said, well, yes, we do have an asshole in, in, in power at that point. And I thought, yes, yeah, so, you know, we had, there must be Canadian, more Canadian assholes. I was struggling with this. So I went into... Uh, I went into my favorite bookstore, University of Toronto Bookstore on, on College Street. You know it. Great, great bookstore. Where I often will go when I'm thinking about things to see if the muses will guide me to the right book. And uh, after scanning the shelves, I looked over on the on the table, and here was assholes of theory sitting on the table, staring me in the face. It was like a, a lightning bolt. Like <laughs> here it is. So I, I picked it up. And I said, "Oh, interesting." Uh, I, I opened it up to page 101, which is what I always do. I open it up randomly, and I see if there's a connection. I go with it. Mm. If, it if it's not, I put it back in the shelf. And I read on page 101, if a young boy was born in the United States, Italy, or Israel, he is far more likely to live the life of an asshole than if he was born in Japan, Norway, or Canada. I thought, ah, bingo. It might be cultural. (laughs) So then I thought, is this some, uh, you know, self-help book, you know, another American self-help book? I hate those books, and I never buy them. So I looked at the back cover, and there was a nice smiling Aaron James, who clearly did not look like an asshole, and I saw his credentials, University of California, PhD scholar, Harvard. I said, okay, serious book. Off I went to the checkout counter. After two days of reading the book, I immediately gave a copy to my daughter, 
who I felt was bringing home too many assholes, introducing me to too many assholes. But, <laughs> hey, uh, John, just, just John, just so you know, as soon as you, I've just had a permanent smile on my face. You, you know that, right? And by the way, guys, congratulations on a, a wonderful film. It's fun. It's it's thoughtful. Oh, it's engaging. Yeah. It's it's it really is a brilliant piece. But I've got this permanent smile as you've been talking. But please go ahead. Very good. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, so my daughter read it and loved it. Uh, she is a millennial. She was 22 at the time. And within two days, I asked my researcher, uh, can you get Aaron on the phone? And sure enough, we found him on his cell in New York. He's giving a conference or something there. And we chatted, I think it was for two hours, and about the book and uh, the idea I had to make a documentary. He said, oh, really? You think you can make a film about this? And, <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I, I think so. I think it's a, it's a great subject. And so we just talked about it. And um, we were that was the beginning. Uh, we, we kind of uh, felt that we, we had a similar, um, uh, what was it? How would you describe it? The zeitgeist. Synergy. Synergy. A synergy. That's the word. I'm looking for. A synergy there. I really felt it hit it off. So, And clearly, Aaron was not an asshole. Um, you know, so I thought, okay. So then we started to move forward, and uh, and here we are with a film. Um, as it turns out, many years later, because I financed my film Quebec, My Country, Mon Pays, a very personal film about growing up in Quebec, got financed before I got the asshole film financed. We had some development money. I kept working uh, on the project uh, while I was making my Quebec film, and then finally got this financed, and away we went. And so that's been over the last two. So it's a little bit longer. For Aaron's been waiting around for this for a couple more years, and, right. and uh, right. he's been very patient with me. <laughs> And um, so do you want me to continue in terms of the release? And um, Well, no, I think that's perfect. I mean, I think that, that really helps. I love, I love the sort of the grassroots-like nature of this. And there's something really human about that, John. And there's something really sort of organic that I, that I love that seems to yeah. probably be rooted. And I just picked up the book, by the way. So I haven't really, uh, I haven't gotten into the, I haven't cracked the cover yet, but I'm going to soon. Um, but, but it seems, I, I think the, 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 the relevant question to Aaron, as you tell us a little bit about yourself, PhD at Harvard, philosopher, frankly, don't you guys have your head in the clouds? You know, I mean, this sounds like a very rooted, organic kind of grassroots piece of writing it seems yeah. to me i just i, I mean, just starters, aaron i just yeah, ran sure. through, i just ran through your cv here really quickly online i mean i mean you're writing stuff like uh, contractualism's not so slippery slope constructing protagorean objectivity wow sounds fascinating <laughs> yeah well it, I, when i came up with a theory it was summertime and i was surfing and you know like um, I, I do a lot of research and stuff but you know i was like having fun and maybe in a playful mood too uh, but so when I was surfing, I'm a surfer, you know, lifelong surfer. And, um, I was out, out at a break and, um, and the, and a guy was, uh, cutting people off. So in, in surfing, there are rules of right away that we use to share waves. And, um, mm. and this guy like cuts people off really blatantly, you know, and, and then when they complain as surfers often do, you know, Hey man, my wave, you know, that, you know, those arguments tend to break out. This, this guy tends to just like escalate and yell at them and like and berate them and then, you know, make it clear that there's absolutely no point in complaining. And then they get a reputation like that, right? And so basically he gets sort of like right away, permanent right away, um, just because these people are like, I oh, forget it, I want to like deal with it. Um, so as this person was surfing by, I thought, oh man, he's such an asshole. Um, and then for the first time right after that, I thought, um, you know, wait a minute, I'm not just venting, uh, you know, feelings or venting disapproval. Um, I'm classifying the guy right. as of a certain type. Um, you know, 
he's an asshole and these other people are not assholes. Um, and, and so what makes for the difference? Like what, what is this concept, the asshole? Um, and then since you're, since I'm a philosopher, you know, and since Plato, you know, uh, we've, we've, as a philosopher has learned how to do definitions and get interested in concepts and definitions. And, um, so I thought, well, okay, um, I'll put my analytical tools, um, to use and try to work up like a set of conditions or criteria, uh, for how, when the concept applies. And then, you know, I just worked at it and had fun play, you know, over summer working on it and with some visiting friends. Um, and then, so then I had the definition, um, that's the one that appears in the book and the documentary. Which is hysterical, um, then, by the way. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, and so it turned out, like, it started out with just surfers and then, like, some colleagues and, like, that it fit really well. Those were my paradigms, to put it in a philosophical term. And then, um, and then later, um, after having a lot of conversations about it with a lot of different people, like sober over drinks, you know, for a while it was just like, for years it was like, oh, I have this theory, you know, about what is to be an asshole. And so I'd share it. And then, but gradually, um, as, especially as I talked to sort of other academic colleagues from different, um, specialties, um, they would sort of say, oh yeah, that reminds me of this, this reminds me of that. And so I, I, you know, from all these different disciplines, so I gradually became, inadvertently became like this repository for the world's asshole knowledge, you know, <laughs> whorehouse. And, uh, and then, um, and then later I met the person who became the agent for the book and he thought of, he thought it could be a good commercial project. He knew how to represent that. And then, so, um, and then he also pushed me to start applying the theory to public figures and, uh, which isn't something those are, we would think of as, as a philosopher, you would think of those as hard cases or dirty cases. You know, they're not, you, they're not the clean cases that you want to frame a theory around, so, but I was sort of forced to go and think about, you know, how they apply to public figures. And then it turned out just, it worked pretty well. It seemed like for a lot of different public figures, you know, you could, you could think of them as not only assholes, but you could think of them as a certain type of asshole and then sort of say things about the types. And so it's sort of, that just panned out, which I thought, oh, see, I'm doing science here. So I had like a hypothesis and then I'm just finding like confirming data. <laughs> like, right. um, and surround and, so, and apparently yeah. surrounded by a fair amount of empirical data by the sounds of yeah, 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 right. Um, but not, well, nothing and, like and, as much data as we have in society now. But at the time, it was more of like an emerging, an emerging problem that you know we had the word, but people it wasn't sort of as crystallized as maybe it is now. Um, so could, yeah, the, you, the book was Aaron. Sort of, Aaron, don't yeah, you call it? Don't you call it a teeming asshole ecosystem we currently find ourselves in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's even more. It's teeming even more um, now than it mm. was when I was working on the book. Um, fortunately, yeah. <laughs> So, so I love the way you guys treat the film. Uh, sorry, you treat this like it's a disease, mm. like it's it's yeah. almost like it's a oh, virus of some kind. Like if I sneeze the wrong way, or if I don't wash my hands, I just might. You know, there's something about the socialization of. You know, John, did you use the word assholery? Mm-hmm. Yes, we we in the film we call it. Uh, yeah, we use the term. Yeah, that's in the book as well. Yeah, I mean it's uh, partly that's it has cultural roots. I mean par- our cooperation with you know in groups, small or large groups, is facilitated by um, you know expectation and confidence that other people are are cooperating as well. Um, and so we're more cooperative when when we think other people are being cooperative. We're less cooperative when we think less are. And so and then the assholery works the same way. You know, kind of like um, it's it's it's. You're more likely to be an asshole, act like an asshole if you think other people are are, are doing it, you know. Sort of, and um, there's a contagion dynamic, right? Yeah. Sort of epidemiological studies mm. are probably helpful. 
Yeah. Understanding the propagation of the problem, right? Yeah, so yeah. you can think of it as something that spreads sort of spreads socially, you know, or, or like the encouragements spread, you know, create a sort of social contagion of a, that's a little bit like, yeah, disease. In fact, some of the game theory modeling of, of disease yeah. spread could actually be sort of similar to uh, yeah. ways you can model asshole behavior. I mean, population. you could, I, I, I saw it as, uh, you know, a culture, the cultural factor. I saw it as a cultural you know the culture of assholery that it, it's a broader context and and it, and we talk about that about the culture of asshole in assholery within an institution like mm. the assholery at in the RCMP you know it's some um, it's it, it it's sort of an institutional kind of assholery mm. as opposed to an individual asshole would that would you agree with that yeah i mean that's yeah. well that's sort of part of what got me into this this game in a way right so like like Aaron i have a, a background in philosophy but in, in you know, more recent years, I became a law and finance guy. Um, but in my philosophic capacity, I was always interested in matters of distributive justice. What does fairness consist in? What does unfairness consist in? And I got to know Aaron's philosophic work on that basis. Um, but then once I became a kind of a lawyer finance guy, um, I began to get interested in the fact, I mean, why is it that there's so many assholes on Wall Street? My, my area of law, largely financial regulation, and I wondered, why is the financial services industry so full of uh, assholes? Uh, we also, at the law school where I teach, um, you know, arrived at, developed a, a no asshole role, role Cornell, yeah. at Cornell uh, Law School. Yeah, I'm the Edward Cornell prophet at the Cornell Law School, uh, just by way of identification. So about 12 years ago, we developed a, a no asshole rule um, when it came to faculty hiring. And that got me that in combination with what was happening on Wall Street, right in the in the years right before the crisis or crash, got me to thinking about something I started informally calling asshole-proof governance systems. And I thought, <laughs> how do you, right? How do you sort of prevent assholery from sort of infiltrating mm. an institute? And how do you uh, sort of purge it once it's already there? How do you how do you, in other words, how do you prevent the disease from breaking out? Right. And then how do you deal with it once it has broken out? And I thought there are various levels of organization, right? A faculty is one level, an entire university is a level, a city or a, 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 a corporation is another level, and of course a polity, right? A federal government or a, a, or what have you. Um, and so I was sort of thinking, I wonder if the same sorts of tools can be used uh, to sort of deal with the problem in these various settings. Um, and so then I, I actually reached out to Aaron finally because I thought I already know this guy from his justice work, uh, and then I found his his um, his assholes a theory book, and I thought I want to talk to him about this uh, asshole proof governance idea. And then where the real magic struck was then I was invited a few years ago to um, organize a public policy conference over at Cornell on a subject of my choosing, and so I thought well why not just have a whole conference devoted to asshole proof governance. Uh, within a polity, so we'd have a constitutional lawyer, for example, to talk about how you prevent assholes from becoming presidents or what have you. Um, and then, you know, in an economic context or in the financial context. Um, and so, of course, I contacted Aaron at once asking if he could be the anchor uh, presenter at the conference. But then we had the great economist Robert Frank uh, sort of discussing assholery um, within the economy, a great constitutional lawyer, Aziz Rana, talking about it as a constitutional matter. Um, and then uh, that's how I met John, because yeah. um, then uh, Aaron told me that John was working on this film in connection with the book. So John came over and filmed a lot of the conference. And yeah. my God, what a magical time that was, because then we were all in one room all talking in one room. together. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, what I was looking for somebody um, to deal with the financial side, because it's clearly not my expertise. You know, and, and so uh, I was asking Aaron, you know, who, who, who could we talk to in, in the financial uh, era? 
and he said, well, you've got to talk to, to Robert Hawkett, Bob. And, and this conference was just happening in a couple of months. So Bob and I talked on the phone, and it was like the same kind of synergy. Like, yeah. and, and Bob was like, yes, let's do it. Let's do it. So, <laughs> conference, and uh, yeah, so, and we've been friends ever since. Well, it clearly, it clearly comes through in the film in, in so many different ways. I mean, there's so many great lines and, and, and little thought experiments and, you know, I love the way you, I mean, the, the metaphor and the pebble at the, uh, in the pond at the end of the film, it's, it's, it's wonderful, beautiful stuff. Um, Robert, tell me, do you, do you agree with John Cleese? Are hedge funds asshole factories? Yeah, I mean, they, they are. Um, the only nuance I would add is that they tend disproportionately to attract assholes in the first place. But then what they right? But then they tend to intensify the assholery of the people they draw in, right? So you can think of them as sort of uh, worse asshole factories and asshole attractors, right? So think of them as like asshole prime attractors and asshole double prime factories, right? Because they send you out an even bigger asshole than you were coming in. So tell so, so, so I'd love all of you to talk about this, but somebody talk about this, and we definitely need to talk about the sort of the the skew, the male skew towards assholery. But um, the the somebody refers to the quintessential asshole industry earlier on in the film, and then and then kind of I think I think Robert, you talk about asshole capitalism. Can can, yeah. can you guys talk a little? Is there is there a rise in that? Is there is there a, a sense of entitlement? That's, yeah, is there a sense of entitlement that's buried within that? This uh, this me culture, this denial of the other. I mean, you guys get into that as well, and I I, I, I love sort of the existential implications of some of this too. You know, this uh, this idea of rooting uh, uh, ourselves in others, or or in this case, ignoring others at at our own expense. I suppose say something general about it. I mean, you might think of any any sort of economic system as sort of embedded within a culture and society that's that's cooperative within a legal structure and, you know, norms of civility and cooperation, etc. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, but there's a kind of like way of designing a capitalist system so that it'll tend to tend because of the, you know, selfish uh, motives it engenders and this feelings of entitlement it engenders will tend to erode those the sort of forms of cooperation that sort of make it work potentially for everybody. Um, and so that you can think of an asshole capitalist. I mean, you can imagine like a kind of capitalist system because it's be- embedded in the right institutions that makes outcomes work for everybody. And that could, that could work like as part of a social contract potentially. And but you can think of an asshole capitalist system as one is which like tends to devolve or degrade because the forms of cooperation that are necessary to keep even that very system running and sustaining tend to get eroded and and and, and so it devolves into something worse and then maybe even fails by its own own capitalist values. You know, right. if shared prosperity is supposed to be a value of of a capitalist society, an asshole capitalist, you know, tends to draw up more and more you know more and more of the resources into fewer and fewer hands. Um, that you have bigger grievances for um, on the part of everyone else, you know, et cetera. And so the idea of shared prosperity becomes, um, becomes, you know, sort of a lie, a broken promise, you know, and then um, that can then create a lot of other instability and political, you know, bring in um, authoritarians, you know, for example, that um, can undermine democracy if that was supposed to be part of the sort of social compact. So, um, so I, I, I think of, the asshole capitalist idea as a way that it's kind of like a self undermining um, system. I mean, it's it, it, you know I focused on um, on Silicon Valley as, as an example of, of, of a new new type of asshole asshole capitalism, and it's it's very interesting um, because when t- with the invention of television, we we always have to go back to the previous technology 
because this new technology of the of the internet is basically radio, television, and print combined. It's actually not a new medium; it's just a new dissemination of of, the, of old right. media. We call it new media, but it isn't. Uh, it's just copying the old media, and that's that's always what happens. Then we call it something new. It's like the tide new. It's a new tide uh, soap. So the the um, the the thing that with Silicon Valley is that if you look at if you look at broadcasting, television broadcasting. Countries, European countries, Canada, uh, countries all over the world created public broadcasting, non-commercial broadcasting for the public good. And, and that, that was a perspective, it was a very Canadian perspective uh, in terms of the public good and maintaining that. Uh, the American model was, was a commercial television. Um, they added on PBS as, as a very tiny, tiny little minority thing. But so Canada and, and Europe uh, resisted this commercialization of, of culture and broadcasting. And so with the internet, initially it was it was free. It was not monetized. It was not it was not free. Um, and Canada has played a role in terms of this uh, of, of demanding public space. So in the period, our our first big move in terms of in terms of this kind of commercialization of culture and of, and of and of media, was Canada put up the first domestic satellite, because the Russians and the Americans were going to fill the entire airways, the entire space. There would be no room for anyone else's satellites. And Canada said, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a public space. Uh, we did the same thing in the 1930s uh, with radio. Uh, all the American commercial stations were crossing our border, and there were, we were going to be overwhelmed and swamped with commercial radio. And we said, no, 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 public space back to the 1930s. In fact, a conservative, progressive conservative government put that in power. So what's happened with the Internet is the commercialization of the Internet uh, is is has degrading it. It's degrading it, and it's down. It's it's you know it's downgrading the quality. And it's monop- and now we've got these corporations, unprecedented size. Apple, Google, unprecedented the size and, and power of these organizations. I mean, these this this new uh, economy is is has gone beyond Wall Street. Yeah. They are now controlling not only economy, globally, but they're they're they are dominating our consciousness. Yeah, the common mind. The common mind. Yeah. And and this and when they're run. So if this if this new era is being run by asshole ethic, then we're in big effing trouble. John often talks about a great Canadian philosopher, and it's actually moved me a lot, and that's uh, Innes. Harold Innes. Yeah, Harold Innes. And John will have a lot more to say about him than I can possibly say. But when John first told me about Harold Innes, I was just, I was astonished by the brilliance and the propheticness of of this man. And in a way, it seems like what Silicon Valley is doing is verifying everything that Innes said. Yeah. But John can give you the details on yeah. that. Well, don't you, don't, don't you bring out, John, in the film that this is a new breed of, of yes, us? Is, well, yeah. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't say new breed, but somebody brought out a new breed of, uh, of, of asshole. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Because of, because of the wealth, the extent of power, this is, this is beyond uh, domestic... Uh, domestic, um, you know, national capitalism. This is again multi. It's, it's following in the multinational, but to a level that we've unprecedented. We've never seen this yeah, kind like, of uh, corporation. It's almost like it's the difference between a mad king and an insane emperor, right? Like right. it's the difference between Ludwig, the, the king of Bavaria, and Caligula, right? right. In a way, yeah. I think the new breed of asshole is the Caligula, yeah. whereas we used to have just you know Ludwig, the mad king of Bavaria types, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so. 
a yeah. recklessness about it actually like a like let's yeah. sort of embodied in the early Facebook slogan move fast and break things yeah. mm-hmm. and they said it was originally supposed to be just an idea of getting creative people a little bit of privilege so they wouldn't get tied up with being too perfectionistic or whatever but mm-hmm. but for a while with the expense of like growth you know maximizing engagement you know Zuckerberg for example just wasn't really that worried about you know the the social consequences of of, of what they were doing it was just like and there, and the, the the thing that makes it pretty asshole is there are all these moralistic ideals attached to it, sort yeah. of rationalizing yeah. the thing, along with capitalist incentives for you know growth and you know vast amounts of yeah. of revenue and resources, mm-hmm. and then so that all creates this idea that just that there's a standing rationalization, which is like no, what we're doing is just for the greater good and right. the good, greater good will win out or whatever. Exactly. Um, and then you know like, but oh, but oh, along the way you know it looks like like the the speech and attention environment that's necessary for democratic deliberation. If that collapses, you know, it's like, oh, you broke something. It's not just like something you can replace, right? Once it's gone and broken and you're in a massively degraded democratic context, there's not, you can't just fix it. No. The the powerful thing for me about looking at this subject and and coming out of Aaron's book is that this is Mm nonpartisan point of view. And and the interesting, the inter- you know, if, if I just went after Wall Street, you know, it's a cliche. Oh, I'm a lefty criticizing, uh, you know, asshole right. capitalism, and and I'm a communist, and I w- we would be disregarded. I mean, that was the brilliant thing about about Harold Innes is that is that he was one of the most dissident intellectuals uh, in in the post-war period, and he could not be nailed for being a, being called a communist because he wasn't. He had read Marx inside out, but he was very careful uh, not to be ideological. Uh, and and so that's what I liked about about Aaron's book. This is not ideology. This is this is human behavior, and it's uh, you can be a, an asshole on the left or the right. And what I found particularly interesting, as Aaron as Aaron just referenced with Silicon Valley, is its roots are liberal left hippie. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to make the world a better place. Right. Fine. This is all good and fine until you start to monetize the culture. You know, and you monetize it for capital gain, and then then the, the whole thing starts to fall apart. To, can, Aaron, Aaron, maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about this the the whole the, the whole nature versus nurture. I mean, I mean, how genetic is this? How learned is this? Is it is it about being socialized? Is it you know somebody later on in the film? I I couldn't remember who it was as I was scribbling notes down, but you know we we often admire some of these people from a distance or maybe up close. So there's this sense of voyeurism. We give them we almost give them license to to be to misbehave um and i'm just kind of wondering is there a place that it comes from like you know i, I is is it bad parenting is it i went I, I didn't go to sunday school enough like what what what's 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 going on here i mean the way i think of it is it's mostly it, it i mean how cooperative we are is just highly dependent on context and culture and our institutional environment and then a, a society writ large you know can change influence a lot of how you know what it's it's sort of asshole non asshole ratio in a big way just by what kind of culture it has so in a, like especially a highly competitive culture that's competitive around status and markers of status like money or you know money um, that's sort of stressful and you know and and maybe cynical then that's just going to induce you know like produce a lot of a lot a lot more assholes or a lot of and a lot a lots of kinds of misbehavior and distrust um, than another kind of system um, so. Um, and that's just a general, there's a general truth that just, you know, that your different social environments can induce, you know, good or bad behavior in these ways. Now, there might be some sort of background differences. I mean, like on why are assholes mainly men? They seem like they're mainly men, you know, not only men and Coulter, as I say in the book and we say in the documentary, you know, 
seems like she's clearly an asshole or it's, it's not a contradiction to call her an asshole. It's not a confusion, you know, like a misuse of the word. Um, uh, she but, wants to be an asshole. Right? Yeah. She, no. Yeah. I don't think she, she, she revels in But still assholes are mainly men. Why? I mean, I'm, it, maybe it has something to do with testosterone or the male brain early on or something like that. Um, but that's only that. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, in Japan, for example, um, there are lots of men and they've got lots of testosterone and they don't, that doesn't convert into, you know, like a big share of the population being assholes. Um, and that's because they have strong, like counter pressures through socialization, shame culture, like strong institutions, strong trust relations that just tend to dampen the thing. And it's, it's if you're, if you're not really aware of the culture and you just travel through, it's like really difficult to spot an asshole or even like think, or think you could find one. Apparently there is sort of a, the asshole, um, assholery at a group level, sort of group assholes, corporate level. Um, but um, but that's a case in which there's no difference in the testosterone levels like, across the, the, the distribution, but there's a big difference in asshole production. And so you're looking at other kinds of factors. Um, um, but, but certainly, as you mentioned, it has to do with um, child rearing is probably a big part of it. You know, girls are held to stricter norms and closely monitored and sharply sanctioned and told that no one will marry them and that they should be nice and be pleasing and that whereas boys are given a lot of latitude you don't expect them to pay attention don't expect them to fall um pay attention to other people will be sensitive um and you know boys will be boys they're get that's sort of if they're sort of self-assertive or break rules that might even be encouraged um and then so no wonder that the and the culture reinforces that and especially when cultural messages are all about you know, getting rich and breaking rules and, right. and uh, all of markers of status, you know, then that's only, that only encourages not just the kids, but the parents to say, well, like, go, you know, like teach your kid how to get ahead and sort of encourage um, that kind of, that kind of behavior. Yeah, there's a structural element here that, that I think all three of us are sort of committed to the existence of, right? That uh, culture can be viewed as a structure, any sort of a system of rewards and punishments kind of leads to a particular kind of structure. <laughs> And if we're rewarding right, the asshole type stuff, and if there's no particular sanction, um, then you know it's almost inevitable that you're going to see a, a proliferation of assholery. And when Aaron mentions you know Japanese culture, for example, it's sort of in, it's an interesting case study, right? Because on the one hand, there seems to be a validation of a certain kind of assholery, namely sexism, right? It tends to be a very male-centric or phallocentric culture. So it might be thought to be encouraging assholery against women in a particular structural sense. But then within the male population, as Aaron was noting, right, you're not rewarded for being an asshole or for being, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb. Um, so in, in many ways, it's not just about structure, but getting the structure right, it seems to me, can make a big difference. And maybe one way of looking at the reason that assholery has become a bigger problem in recent decades is that we seem to have lost sight of that structural element, the sense in which it's a collective action problem that requires uh, a deliberate exercise of collective agency to address. Is that kind yeah, of like, that, is, that, is, that the RC, is that the RCMP example? The, is, that the, is that the group think that we're sort of talking yeah. about there, Robert? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, I mean, the, the thing about um, going forward in the film, I wanted to illustrate the impact on the individual and I want to look at the impact on, on an institution, and, I'll, and God help you if you elect an asshole to run your country, the larger <laughs> political uh, realm. Uh, so, so the, 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 the um, Sherry story within the RCMP really, really covers the spectrum, uh, where, where she is she's put in a situation of 
of and and the other point of the film like everything really comes together it's like the early setup in the film of all these elements of she's pushing back she's she's overwhelmed she's pushing back and she has success mm. so all mm. of the themes of the films deal with uh push back well sorry sorry impact toxic impact on the individual uh, how the institutions uh, function and the uh, when an asshole at the top, it filters down. She has a brilliant analysis of, of how assholery works within an institution. And then we see how hard it is for her to push back, 20 years of pushback. She's a single parent who uh, can't you know, leave her job. If you, I mean, the, you know, the recommendation, if you're working with an asshole, leave the job. She can't. She's in a small town in, in the prairies with a child. And what is she going to do, walk across the street and go to McDonald's? No, she can't. She has to survive in this organization. So what does she do? She pushes back and she fights to the point where she was considering suicide. So this is the this is a dark story, but it shows the impact of assholery on the individual. And and um, so to me, she's our she's our superhero in the film because she pushed back. She started a Me Too movement within the RCMP, a class action suit. In fact, there was two class action suits. The first one was 3,000 women's signatures. The second one is a larger, I don't have the, the amounts in the billion, um, millions of dollars. Uh, the second one signed by, by male employees as well. And the government appointed the first female head in which she is recently advising. She's an advisor to the RCMP, now to the head of the RCMP. So this is a, this is a win-win, but boy, does she ever suffer. Well, you, and, it, What's so amazing to me too, John, is how, how brilliantly you've handled this in such a comedic, uh, um, um, historical, academic, uh, and serious and meaningful way. Like you I mean, like you say that her story is very dark and really disturbing. Very dark, yeah. Really I, disturbing. I, 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 Often I'll, I'll give away a secret of some of my films is that is that I, it's the uh, is I like uh, you know Greek Greek history and uh, I've always liked the Trojan horse story. Mm. Uh, so you 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 walk in with the with the, with the clowns clang, clanging and banging and isn't this going to be fun? Mm-hmm. And then the dark the dark evil comes out out of the over to the Trojan horse and and, and turns the situation around. Uh, that's Act Two. Act three, though, act three is that I wanted to have a very, uh, I, I see this as an activist film, and it's, it's, it's also practical. There are, there are solutions, and that's where we turn to Baird uh, as, as, a, as an example of, a, of, of enlightened capitalism. Uh, it's partly why we, I set up, uh, you know, we set up the uh, Wall Street and, and uh, how Robert set up the, the, the contradiction in that, and here we have the opposite. Here we have actually a solution. So I think that's a great a great place to sort of sadly almost wrap up. We've got to wrap up here in a couple in a couple of minutes. But so so is that is that the antidote? And, and any any one of you, please dive in. But is is it virtue ethics? Is it, you know this this idea of enlightened capitalism that is is seemingly at least on the surface considerate of the other? For what it's worth, let me just throw in something really quick. I mean, I think I think it's a two sort of a two front war in a sense, right? I think Baird Capital is an excellent proof of the fact that if you handle asshole-proof governance at the firm level, you can. It's possible to do well, and it's also possible for all of your, all of those who are constituents of the firm themselves to do well. Um, however, I think I would also add that it's very helpful if the external environment is such as to make it possible for there to be a lot of Baird Capitals that all prosper, right? One thing that John uh, noted in a conversation that we were having earlier today 
is that Baird Capital sort of, you know, if you press them, they'll, some of them will say, well, they don't want other firms to become like them because this is what separates them from the crowd, right? Um, but ideally, we would want a capitalism where everybody had incentives to be like Baird, where if you were a Baird Capital, you wouldn't want to be the only Baird Capital. You'd be instead saying, I wish every firm were like us. But as soon as Baird is telling you that they hope that other firms won't be like them, that they could be the only one, that tells me at least that you have a structural problem, that you actually have uh, a system in place whereby there's only room for one Baird because that's what differentiates them. That's their gimmick. That's their tag, right? But you don't want it to be of that kind of thing. You, know, you want it to be the thing that everybody wants to be, right? You want everybody mm -hmm. to be like Baird. That's where it's a structural matter, and that's where the orchestra conductor analogy that we talk about in the film uh, or the exercise of collective agency idea that we talk about in the film, that's where that comes in, I think. Bob, Bob was involved in writing legislation that would encourage those kinds of things at the firm level, sort of creating the structural, legal, structural, regulatory environment that would encourage. Yeah, that's sort of one of the things I do is, um, I mean, in my, my sort of – I, my, one of my principal sort of pro bono, act, bono activities is to help write draft legislation for legislators who are decent people who want the you know the, want the economy to be a decent economy. Elizabeth Warren is one, Bernie Sanders is one, and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is one. And as Aaron points out, I mean the, most of the stuff I do for those guys is of that character. You try to write legislation that makes it the case that every firm has reasons to be like Baird Capital, and furthermore, that every firm has reasons not to be like the photographic mm. negative of Baird. It's good. It's good. Well, wow, what a what a pleasure uh, chatting chatting with you guys today. I uh, I really don't want this one to end. I I, I think uh, we 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 could keep, we could keep this going. Uh, this one going fairly fairly easily. Um, how do how do we how do we wrap it up? How do we conclude? What do is there is there how how about this? Here's something really practical. Is there something called an asshole intervention? How does how does one actually change? How does so I'm I'm all about change, social change. Sounds like Robert, you are too. Social justice, etc. How do how do you get how do you move the needle? How do you how do you watch some oh. of those ripples? You know, move out yeah. beyond the yeah. pebble um, and make a difference. Yeah, I think I think that that you can like individuals can make a difference. Uh, I think that if you, I think that's the purpose of this film is, mm. is to show that you can make a change. Uh, you know, if you look at Sherry's case, you know, it's an example. There's also a Sherry Cobb that, that the, the teacher who made a difference with one student who was headed to be that asshole CEO of the corporation, the manly man. Uh, and, and she, she made an effort, simple effort, uh, to push back on that student and and out into the world comes a, a, a guy's not an asshole, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. So you can you can make changes in small ways, um, and I think that um, you know despite the fact that 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 Baird is happy that they're uh, you know they have a competitive edge. I mean he was being a bit ironic, so I, I would I would argue with with, with Robert that he, he wasn't being that that serious. Oh. So so he was being a bit ironic with that. He was sort of laughing as he said that. So oh. so I I, I think. Uh, Robert painted a bit of a darker picture of, of, of Baird than, than I would that I would have uh, on that front. But um, so I, I think I mean what's interesting just going back to Baird because I you know it's by by looking at financial because I don't want the uh, the audience look oh you bunch of lefties you know making this film. Because <laughs> uh, even saying asshole capitalism it's like oh they see us coming you know 
But that's why Baird is there, because this is enlightened capitalism. It's not an anti-capitalist film. We're, we're seeing structural problems with it to make it better, and that's what that's Robert's point of view. But one, one thing that I'll just make the point with Baird is that because they're not uh, incumbent, they don't have a, they're not public, they don't have public shareholders. They are their own shareholders. They can uh, think long term and not short-term, and that's, that's what distinguishes them, is long-term thinking, and mm. he says that in this. So that, that's a distinct, it's not just a no-asshole rule, it's a long-term thinking that undermines short-term greedy, we must maximize our profits. And with most corporations, if the CEO can be enlightened, but if there's a public shareholders, it's incumbent upon that CEO to maximize profits in the short term. So, so that's really important in, in a way of looking at, at Baird. And there's no, and I want to say, encourage other companies to hey this is a model i mean i think i think robert and i are in agreement that this oh, yeah. is a model yeah this is a model let's follow it i mean we're we're giving it up to the world and they may want to try to hold it back but I, I don't think they really do but like let's put it out there part of elizabeth warren's shtick by the way she says she she calls herself a capitalist but she says back in the 50s and 60s north american capitalism was a functional system that produced great wealth that was well distributed and it made life better generation after generation for everybody and something changed in the last 30 years where you know according to or pursuant to which the current generation of people coming of age right the, the millennials are the first generation in recent north american history who are expected to do worse materially than their predecessors so that's a kind of capitalism off the rails but warren in particular would be you know she would really emphasize i'm a capitalist but i'm a particular kind of capitalist that used to be the form of capitalism that predominated in north america but that recently hasn't i think aaron had a really cool intervention at the end of his book too i always loved the letter to an asshole at the end of aaron's book that's incredible. I don't know if you happen to see that, but that is just, oh, that, that's a masterpiece. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I will look forward to reading that. I think just, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to use this just to end, but Aaron, uh, final yeah. question. Uh, anyone die, die, dive in if you still have the time guys, but I think I just heard uh, you guys are down in, in, in Toronto somewhere. I heard a siren in the background. I'm going to take that and run with it. Um, I think one of your final lines in the film is, you know, we all, we all went in and, and our fates are unclear. Um, is, yeah, yeah. Is, is, is that the, is that the future? Yeah. I mean, I think right now, it, uh, I mean, I guess what I wanted to, the future of the Republic is really at what's at stake, um, whether we're really going to have a democratic Republic. I mean, just the kind of thing that anyone, any, um, American or Canadian, you know, um, would believe in just by understanding the our really basic form of, you know, polity. Um, that's what that's really what's at stake because that requires a culture of cooperation, it requires speech uh, cooperation, it requires ideas of civility, it requires that wealth be distributed in at least in certain kinds of ways. You know that everybody has enough. You know, kind of um, for things to be sustainable. And you know, if we can have capitalist markets working along like, but then we have to sort of manage them. We have to have a political system that. That um, you know isn't too divisive and doesn't. But right, right now, what we have is the resurgence of an authoritarian type of uh, personality and politics and hierarchy that's just fundamentally inimical to the, this modern project. I mean, it's much more in line with the you know pre-modern um, types of monarchies and you know authoritarian structures. And so I, I really do think of it as, and you know, not that it's it's eroding sort of democracy from within this the authoritarian you know, kind of retrenchment. And I think that's really what's at stake. It's, it's really something world historical that's at stake. And, um, and at the moment, um, 
you know, it's not clear that um, democracy or the democratic republic is going to win in the long in the long run. I mean, I hope it does, and sometimes I can feel optimistic that it does, but at least this, this week I'm definitely less optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that's what the stakes, and, and the scary thing about it, sort of like with a lot of environmental tragedy, the commons problems, there's not any one solution. There's not any one thing you can do to just fix it. It's it's always, you know, like a hundred different things that have to move, you know, sort of in the right way, right timing and concert to sort of gradually get uh, the situation to approve, sort of clean up an environment and stuff like that. And um, that's what it takes, um, nothing less. Um, and uh, But that just means that there's something for everyone to do. You just find some bit of it and then try to move the needle a little bit. A quick silver lining point. It's, the fact that it was a siren means it was a public instrumentality, which means that something is being publicly funded, which is good news. The bad news, the really ultra bad news, would have been if it was a honking horn, as it would have been in Manhattan, where I live. <laughs> hey, you know what? I lied. I have one last question. Do Canadians make terrible assholes? You guys, you guys, it, uh, it comes. You, and, yeah, and, I, don't know. I don't want to find out if, like, how good they are. Okay, there's two Americans here against one Canadian. That's right. That's right. Let the what that. what yeah. a brilliant what a brilliant move having John Cleese in the film too, John. I just it was so so much fun to see him on screen and and uh, yeah what a what a wonderful what a wonderful film. It sounds like you guys are enjoying it and thanks so much yeah. for your time today. We've been talking with John Walker, Aaron James, and Robert Hockett about the the their uh, that well John Walker's new film uh, Assholes a Theory. Thanks thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Such fun. Thanks so much. Bye now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.